Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is the plant-based subscription meal kit that makes it easy to cook irresistible meals to fuel your body. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new with easy recipes and fresh pre-portioned ingredients. No shopping, no food waste. Just globally inspired, restaurant quality, plant-based meals. Get $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering the promo code PODGO30 at checkout today. That's POD, P-O-D-G-O-30 for $30 off your first Purple Carrot box. Purple Carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. Hey everybody, welcome back to another installment of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. And we've got an interesting show for everyone tonight. Um, We're going to be talking with political trade writer Sabrina Rodriguez as we dive into the world of what it's like to be a female journalist in today's world. Um, We recently did an episode, Nick and I, on the media and my experiences working in news media. We had Naveed Jamali on to give us his perspective as he's the editor-at-large of Newsweek. Um, But we've never really covered it from the female perspective. Like, what's it like to be today's working female journalist? and Sabrina not only has covered the Trump administration for a previous um, Diario Perfil in Argentina, um, but she's also now working for Politico and covers a lot of the trade news that happens with the administration. So she's going to give us great insight into what it's like covering uh, the current administration and a president in general, um, what it's like being a female reporter out there, um, you know, meeting deadlines and, and writing stories at key hours and, and verifying sources. And so we're really excited to have her on the show tonight. 
Yeah, part of Sabrina's focus, as, as Mike, you've been speaking to, is you know in the you know when we think of um, her coverage through Politico with the Trump administration, specifically in the Latino, the Latino focus, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, and what we've seen partly from the election, but really what the Latino vote now represents. Uh, one thing I'm excited about hearing from her is. You know, as it relates to the Trump administration, that focus through Senator Marco Rubio, which is a, a piece that she wrote to, that focus around uh, Cuba and Venezuela, but the narrow the narrow scope there, and what does that mean in terms of better understanding our relations actually with South America and Central America, and really the Latino vote um, and the presence of Latinos as it relates to the U.S. and really the just the shifting population uh, in the United States. So I think there's a ton of stuff that Sabrina gets to bring to the space today that I'm, ex I'm excited to explore with her. Yeah, you know, uh, me and her, you know, obviously we have a common bond. We're both uh, Cuban Americans. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to talk to her a lot about the Latino vote because, you know, living down here in, in Florida now where, where we've transitioned since the pandemic, um, you know, the Latin vote was, uh, and the Latino vote was, was a huge part of, you know, Donald Trump winning Florida. Um, so we're going to talk to her about that. We're going to talk to her a little bit about, you know, not only the, the relations that the U.S. and Cuba have today, but like you mentioned, right, there's Miami is a big uh, melting pot for and the gateway to, to Latin America. And, and she's got a, a foothold in that presence. But then also, you know, I, the journalist in me, I want to go back to her journalism roots, right? Like she's working in D.C. covering a beat, you know, um, what is that like? And especially the female perspective from it, you know, like we, we have the male perspective and, and it's such a male dominated industry, but what it's like to get that female perspective. And, and like I mentioned, meeting the deadlines and writing a story and va validating sources, like wh what is that like for today's female journalists? So we're, we're really excited to have her on and uh, can't wait to talk to her. All right, joining us now, she's a politics writer for Politico. She's formerly at Diario Perfil in Argentina, covering the Trump administration. Uh, she's been at the Miami Herald, the Miami New Times, and that is Sabrina Rodriguez. Sabrina, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thanks for hopping on and giving us a couple minutes here. Yeah, excited to be with you guys. So Sabrina, uh, you know, we're a topical show, uh, like I mentioned to you off air, and one of the things that we're covering in this episode tonight is today's female journalists, you know, what it's like working as a journalist today and being a female, you know, we've done the male perspective from myself and, and Navi Jamali when he came on a few weeks ago, but what is it like for you uh, when you were growing up, did you always want to get into journalism or what was it about writing and, and being a reporter that interests you? Yeah. I mean, you know, growing up, I did always want to be a reporter. Cause I, I mean, like, if you asked me in school, I hated science. I hated math. It was kind of the stereotypical, like, I just liked writing and reading. So that made sense. Um, I will say, though, like, growing up, not only as a woman, but growing up, like, in a Latina household, it was very much like, okay, but you could, like, become a doctor or, like, you could be an engineer. Like, you could do all these things. Like, if you're really smart and good in school, why would you be a journalist that, like, that doesn't pay? Um, but I think like as I was in high school and like got older and went to college and stuff, it kind of became obvious to everyone in my family, like they weren't going to dissuade me from that. So everyone was really supportive in that front. And I mean, I never realized the distinction or like the difference between like being a woman journalist or being a Latina journalist necessarily until being in DC. And it's like when you're in DC and you find yourself on Capitol Hill and like you got to stop like a 75 year old old white man and your like 
a young woman Latina from Miami and you're like, okay, how, what, how are we going to relate? Like, how am I even going to have something to talk about with you? Um, when you're looking at, you know, a lot of your peers being men, being white men that may have been from like either the same city or the same area, or just like automatically being a white man have like certain similarities. Um, so yeah, it was really in DC that I realized like, damn, this is not what it's like for everyone. Yeah, you know, when we talk about your upbringing and just that point, thinking about writing, which as an Indian person, it's nice to know we're not the only household where it's like, well, you could be a doctor, engineer, all that stuff. <laughs> um, you know, education, okay. But so I think about your work from, from the craft of writing. And as an educator, and I've worked in, this, in the, the realm for a while, um, when I think about writing instruction, you know, what is it like when you're in elementary school and they teach you writing and then they talk about these different structures, five paragraph essays and stuff like that. Along the way to where you are now as a, as a writing professional, what did you find most helpful in terms of improving your craft? Um, and what potentially did school really not prepare you for? Or kind of point you in the right to wrong direction, actually, as it relates to your ability to, as ability, uh, to write. Yeah. So, I mean, I lucked out in the sense that I was like in journalism classes since middle school. Like my middle school had a like newspaper class and my high school had a newspaper. So I was able to early on see the difference between like the structure you're learning and like fourth grade for like standard. It was like in, in Florida, there was always like the standardized FCAT writing test mm -hmm. in the fourth grade. And you learned how to do that format. And then that format kind of translated into what you did through high school, honestly, like the mm -hmm. five paragraph essay format. So I think like having those classes gave me an idea of what another type of writing was where I was like, okay, I'm really into this and this is the stuff I like doing. Um, so I think having that opportunity, like, I mean, I don't have to tell you as an educator that, you know, extracurriculars matter and like mm -hmm. what electives kids have an opportunity to be part of makes a difference. For me, it made a huge difference. Um, Cause I didn't, you know, people would tell me like, well, you can't go to college and study English because then what are you going to be an English professor? And I know that not to be true because I obviously have plenty of friends that ended up studying that in college and have had like super mm -hmm. successful careers and very random things. But for me, it was like, okay, well, what's like a practical major I could do from what I'm interested in. And it was journalism. And, you know, I think the, the part then that you don't learn in the classroom is like, necessarily news judgment or you don't necessarily understand like how politics works or how like certain aspects of news work but then comes in my household where like my abuela has cnn on all day and talks about politics and talks about news all day so i think like that combination of doing the writing at school and then coming home and knowing the politics stuff really combined to to me at least internally being like oh I'd want to do that. Like, that'd be cool to like write about this for a living. You know, Sabrina, you just mentioned it a, a couple minutes ago about, you, you know, when you were telling your family the decision that you want to get into journalism, it doesn't pay that much. And Nick and I are both journalism school communication majors ourselves. And we had a professor that kind of echoed the same thing one day in class. Hey, who wants to make money? Everybody waves their hand and he's like, all right, we'll get out because this is not it for you. But I'm curious now that you've uh, gone along the way of becoming one, did you have any influences, anybody that you look to in, in the field, whether it's through television or writing that you were pointing to them and saying, I, I want to kind of emulate that or be or, or follow that path? Yeah. 
it's tough too, because like as a writer, you know, it's not the same as broadcast and it's not the same as like the anchors you see. Like there's tons of writers behind an anchor that you see on CNN or Fox and stuff. Like it's not, you know, there's the talent and, and a lot of these people are journalists, not, you know, they're also trained journalists that went to school for it and everything, but there's like the front facing person. And then there's all the people behind the scenes that are making it happen as well. So, you know, I didn't know all of that going in. So I think, you know, when I was, you know, I wanted to be a journalist, I grew up watching on TV, you know, Maria Elena Salinas. And I always thought, you know, how incredible her life was and her traveling the world and getting to cover all these stories in different places. So she was like an obvious idol and an obvious, you know, person to look to. Um, and then I think, you know, when I went into college, I like got to meet a lot of these people, you know, between going to conferences or, you know, schools bring speakers and stuff and then getting to meet firsthand people, you know. I have to always give credit to, um, and she's not like a famous MSNBC reporter or anything, but her name's Arelis Hernandez, and she's a correspondent for the Washington Post. And I met her randomly at a conference, a Hispanic journalist conference in Orlando, like, I don't know, seven years ago at this point, it all has blended in. But I met her there and, and getting to talk to her made such a difference because she was living in DC. She was working for the Washington Post. She was getting to write, you know, these amazing stories that I just loved and respected. Um, and, and having her has made all the difference because as I'm moving along in my career, she's older than me. So I'm getting to see like, okay, cool. So this is how she negotiated this or you know, this is when she got tired of this, she was able to talk to editors this way. And having someone to just bounce those things off of makes such a difference. And, uh, you know, naturally, having another Latina that's going through it is not the same as asking a man for advice, or is not the same for asking a white woman for advice, or, you know, like, having some shared experience with someone definitely helps when you're explaining, like, your version of imposter syndrome, or your version of like your experiences, obviously. It's funny you just said imposter syndrome. And so since you just mentioned that, it just sparked my thinking. Um, how do you confront that? Because that's, it's just a real phenomenon. I think it's something that all of us experience on some level. Um, as that continues to, well, first, let me ask you this. Do you still have that, does that experience still show up for you? Okay. <laughs> when, I, when I figure out how to really combat it, we'll get back to you. Um, but no, I think, you know, as time passes, like I always like joke and people like my friends and stuff will call me out and be like, you shouldn't say that. But I'm like, you, you know, fake it till you make it. Like I, I totally feel like I'm just trying to figure it out. And then people will say like, well, obviously you have it figured out. I don't. Um, and I think it still comes up all the time. I mean, especially in like Washington where everyone's trying to portray themselves you know, as professionals or plugged in or sourced up or, you know, all of that. I think there's a lot of faking it and a lot of the imposter syndrome of like, how am I here? Um, or especially when you're dealing with people, like I'm a young journalist. I, I actually, I was talking about this with a friend today where I was like, wow, I'm at a place where I feel comfortable saying this. Um, I turned 26 next week. So I'm pretty young of a journalist <laughs> in reality. Um, and, and I remember before being ashamed of that, like you kind of go into it where you're like, oh my God, nobody's going to take me serious if I tell them that I'm this young. Um, and I think now it shows kind of growth where I'm like, okay, like, I, yeah, I am here and I'm only 25. So what's your point? Um, so I think, you know, like along the way you get, you do build some level of confidence when you've been doing it for a while, but I still find myself all the time being like, yo, how am I doing this? Or like, how am I here right now? <laughs> Um, and, and yeah, and I just like kind of 
you know, you got to get through it. It's not, I can't take a day off of work because I'm suddenly having an existential crisis. Today's episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients, a disruptive notion that sparked the creation of a new healthy snacking category. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients, a disruptive notion that sparked the creation of a new healthy snacking category. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo, to shift the food industry, and empower their community and our listeners to make better, informed choices about health. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that is why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% or 15% off for military, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Go to podgo.co backslash kind. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash kind. Kind bar, creating a kinder and healthier world. One act, one snack at a time. Very well put. Um, I want to transition, though, now to here comes the hard questions. Ready? We talked about this off air. There's, there's facts and then there's opinions. And opinions have started to supersede facts, right? A fact is the T-shirt's black. An opinion is the shirt makes me look stupid. And what's happened now is people are starting to believe more of the opinion than the fact. You hear the buzzwords being thrown around, not only from the the Trump administration, but in all walks of the political spectrum, right? Uh, Fake news, right? This story, because it's unkind to me, it's deemed fake. How do you circumvent fake news with reporting facts? And how do you get people to trust those facts, which is on its surface, a crazy question, but how do you, how do you get people, it's your job to do that for people to trust the facts as you confirm them and verify them and report on them. Yeah, well, no, to, to your point, you know, it's a crazy question, but it's a very valid one because right now there are tons of people that just don't believe that if they don't like what you have to say, what the facts are, they'll just say they're not real. Like they, they won't say like, oh, that doesn't change my opinion or, oh, I still feel this way. No, they'll just say, well, that's not true even if it is just a fact and I can like find you 25 different pieces of evidence that show that it's a fact, you know, people will disagree with you on it. So I, you know, my job isn't to convince you that the truth is the truth, but my job is to make sure that what I am presenting is true and is to make sure that I am doing my job of, of showing people what the truth is. So, I mean, going into my job, you know, I would like to believe that I would go through these same levels of effort, regardless of if people were convinced by fake news these days. But, you know, I make sure that if I'm writing a controversial piece that I know that people are going to get heated about, I want to make sure that that is the most foolproof story that I am printing. Like, if I'm writing about, you know, Donald Trump and like the electoral fraud and what's going on right now, where a lot of people don't think that he lost the election. A lot of people really believe that he won and that he's going to be the president on January 20th. Um, You know, with a story like that, for example, right now, it's like making sure that I fully articulate every walk you through why that is not true. And sometimes it's hard because I think when you know something to be a fact, it's harder to explain it because you're like, well, duh, like, of course, that's not true. Or of course, that's true. Um, But I think like being aware that this is happening forces you like to some level subconsciously to really go out of your way to explain it. Um, And I think, yeah, it's it's forced me to kind of do like baby steps 
of like, okay, this is what happened. This is what people are arguing happened. However, it is not true. <laughs> like, I, like actually, literally, that's perfect. Like, I there are in stories where I literally have to put a line that says that. Like, however, that is not true. Or, however, that has been repeatedly proven to not be true. Um, like having things like that, where I guess you'd be like, oh well, why is that necessary? You know, you have to go that extra mile at this point. I'm gonna bring you back to the classroom now. <laughs> it's like it's <laughs> to occupy. Um, when we think about the concept of information literacy, this idea of making sure that students understand this ability that we're both all talking about as you know, as you know, fully formed adults and the ability to interpret fact versus fiction. If you have the ability, if you had to think about what is best to bring to the classroom to really spark that ability to help students um, improve their ability to understand information literacy. What are some things you'd want teachers to be mindful of, uh, especially in the internet age when students are doing research online and you know producing written work um, that can be a verified source, potentially not a verified source? Oof, that's a really good question. You know, I'm actually right now working on a story that has to do with um, disinformation in the Georgia runoffs and how that could impact turnout or how that could like sway people to stay home and all of that. Um, and, and I wrote about it specifically about uh, Spanish speaking communities in South Florida were like swamped with disinformation leading up to the election. So, you know, I have given it a lot of thought and I think, you know, a part of it is really showing people like news judgment is important and like understanding what is you know a verifiable source what is a good source of information the same way that in school you learned to look in the dictionary for something or you learned you know don't get everything that you write off of wikipedia if you're writing a report on something you know your source shouldn't only be wikipedia like i remember that being instilled in me in school and being instilled like what was primary source and things like that. And I think there needs to be an even bigger effort now because it's not just that, oh, you see one post on Facebook and, oh, I can just dismiss that and that's fake. It's that I could see a post on Facebook right now and Google to see if it's true and find like 20 links that say it is true and it is actually misinformation. It's no longer like one meme or, you know, one post or something, you know, there's so much of it everywhere that I think really in explaining that, like I think a classroom lesson about looking at all these Facebook posts and being able to trace back which of them were true and which one aren't would be fascinating. Or, you know, having people bring like a family WhatsApp group chat and, and links that were shared in there and be able to like show, okay, this one that your aunt sent isn't real. <laughs> like this one, if we go back, we can see that it was created by a random bot or we can see that it's actually the commentary of something. Like having people being willing to not just read a headline and make a judgment or not just see a meme and make a judgment, but actually like go back and check and see that things are real or true or a fact um, would make a difference. You know, and that's a perfect segue into this question because unfortunately we have to stay in this realm because, you know, uh, when Nick and I did the episode on the media and we had Navi Jamali on, Navi Jamali was also a Fox a contributor. And him and I, Nick had asked us, is it, is it like professional wrestling? Are these guys off air like that? And we both explained that they're not like that off air, but Fox was the birth of this, right? And now there's just so much 
alternative media options that people are going to from an, an alternate to Twitter and parlor to podcasts like Mark Levin, Megan Kelly, Dan Bogino. Um, they run the gamut. And now everyone is using this world of opinion to report it as factual information. What do you make of all these alternative sources that people are going to now for information? You mentioned Facebook as one of them that people are trusting as opposed to verifying. And then somebody like myself who works in the digital product space would tell people, and I use the journalism background, you got to verify these things, right? Use independent sources. If you don't trust the big three of the Fox, CNN, MSNBC, what do you make of the alternative media world and all these different options available to people? Yeah, I mean, it's honestly terrifying. And I, it, what's terrifying to me is that, like, if I was, if I, for example, if I, if I was a recently arrived immigrant in the United States, or I was someone that was just starting to get involved in the political process and was curious and, you know, was going to become a citizen, was going to get to vote, or I was like really young. And I, if I was 17 years old and I'm about to turn 18 and I'm going to get to vote and I'm starting to pay attention to all of this, like, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to gauge what you need to be following. And I mean, we know historically that people tend to, when they turn 18, you know, follow what their parents, you know, political party was, at least, you know, in the immediate. And we know that, you know, immigrant communities are influenced by what, you know, the rest of the people that got there before them are doing. You know, we, we've seen it with Cubans, for example, that, you know, they continue to vote, you know, by and large Republican and, even when that kind of shifted, it's kind of got swung back again to, you know, mostly Cubans are voting Republican and we're seeing it with Venezuelans and we're seeing it with Colombians and we're seeing it across the board of, you know, people kind of like immigrant communities flowing in one way. And I think that, you know, I'm, I could go a hundred ways with this answer because there's so much to it, honestly, guys. But I, I just think that it's hard. It's hard to gauge who is a reliable source if you're just getting involved in this. Like, I am a journalist and sometimes I'm like, is that person a journalist or are they a commentator? And, and I find myself having to say that to people like, again, with my grandmother that watches CNN, like, I think she's very like well-educated on what news is and news judgment and stuff, but she'll still find herself telling me like, oh yeah, that journalist Van Jones. And I'm like, Van Jones isn't a journalist. Like that's not, but because she sees him on CNN all the time and he's on these programs, she's just made this assumption that he is a journalist. And I think, you know, that is a tough part of this and that you could find someone that has the same opinion as you anywhere. <laughs> like you could find a podcast that has people parroting what you're already thinking and to gauge if the person that you trust or a person that you like is giving you wrong information is tough. Like I, I don't know what the solution is here, but I do think that as we have more opportunities to get information and it's not just CNN, MSNBC and, and Fox, or it's not just the Washington Post and the New York Times and your you know, local newspaper, it gets harder to gauge what is, you know, what is factual or how do you have like a, well, you know, I hate say using these like wonky phrases, but like, you know, your media diet, like I, a lot of people aren't going through the effort of figuring out like, okay, I'm going to check five places to see if what I read in this one place is true. Like that I can do that because I have the time and that's my job. But, you know, to expect that my mom is going to do that every time she reads something is, is kind of unreasonable. You know, we've been talking, uh, you've shared a few minutes about just the, you know, from a coverage standpoint of 
um, just think about voting patterns for Latinos and Latinas, thinking now about the coming Biden administration. And I think often about a piece you wrote about Senator Marco Rubio and just the influence he had in the Trump administration with a laser focus on affairs in uh, Cuba and Venezuela. With the new administration coming in, what is your thought about, or recommendation rather, to better understand um, the Western Hemisphere in terms of uh, Latino politics? What would your hope be for the Biden administration to perhaps bring in a broader scope or just a different approach to understanding the affairs uh, of those different nations? That's a big question. (laughs) Um, And I will say that's like my, my passion i love like latin america and i like in school studied it i lived in argentina for a bit i lived in cuba for a bit for a program like i that's like my passion subject and i think like first and foremost it's that latin america isn't just mexico like that would be a good start or latin america isn't just cuba and venezuela um i think you know i understanding that all these different countries have different needs different interests different relationships with the united states currently and historically like, I think that's incredibly important. And, you know, I, something that, that's tough, too, is then to separate what is good foreign policy from what is good, you know, for domestic needs or what is good for voters. I think that, you know, with Trump, for example, we saw that a lot of what he did with Cuba, I'm not saying he wouldn't have done it anyway, but a lot of what he did towards Cuba or towards Venezuela in terms of sanctions and crackdowns and, you know, his rhetoric on it, had to do a lot with pleasing a base of voters that he needed and a base of voters that he wanted to make sure to win um, again in 2020. And he did. I mean, he, he successfully courted Cubans and Venezuelans. And, you know, that was from four years of very consistent messaging. Like he, at one point, you know, his administration would be down in Miami like once a month to announce a new either sanction or a speech on something about human rights in Cuba and Venezuela, or, you know, that was something that he always kept, you know, harping on. And whether you agree with what the policy outcome was, or if you agree that it's the right way to approach Cuba or Venezuela, he did have it front of mind. And he was talking about all the time. And he did empower voices like Marco Rubio's and did listen to what Rubio said, because Rubio unlocked, you know, a group of voters and Rubio is popular in Florida, and he knew that Rubio would help deliver votes come 2020. So I think part of it for Biden now is going to be navigating those politics. Like, what can he do in Cuba and Venezuela that will, you know, help him heading towards 2024? But also what's good foreign policy? Like, I think maybe they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, and again, I'm, I am not a national security advisor for Biden, so I don't know how he's going to navigate that, but I think he is going to have to find himself in a spot of, you know, I need to do better with these people because clearly I didn't in this election. I need to do better with Cubans. I need to show up for Venezuelans, you know, look, and especially just not only for him as a politician, but just for the democratic party overall. Um, but also, how do I do smart policy towards these countries in a way that, you know, is different than Trump did? Um, And I'm really curious to see how he pulls that off. I think it's going to be difficult given that, you know, he's not the most beloved politician in South Florida right now. Um, And, you know, a lot has happened in Cuban Venezuela over the past four years. So it's not the same Cuban Venezuela from when Obama was president. You know, uh, I want to go back for one second um, on the election 
process, right? We had uh, a legal analyst on uh, David Backen, who's a practicing attorney, even worked uh, in, in conjunction with the Jones Day uh, firm on something else. Um, and we, we discussed at the time, this was a couple of weeks ago, the 34, 33 lawsuits and how many of them have been thrown out of court. Here we are, uh, we're approaching when the electors uh, select on, on Monday the 14th, and it's now 50 out of 51 lawsuits that have been thrown out of court. And the one lawsuit that was accepted was because of a deadline date that was changed in Pennsylvania. What do you make of the, the fact that this is still ongoing, that there's still lawsuits being brought up, that the election process is still being discussed a month later? And from the journalist angle, you know, what is it, what is it like covering that? Because like you said earlier, you know it's a fact, you have time to verify what's a fact and people are not doing the same thing. So what do you make of this entire process that we're still here a month later after the election? It's insane. <laughs> it's honestly insane. And I have to say, you know, I, as a journalist, like on a personal level, it's crazy to witness it because like it, my life depends on this, you know, like if the election had just ended quietly, I probably would have had a vacation at some point in this past month. And that has not happened because it's so insane and so busy all the time. So like on a practical level for everyone involved in politics and everyone covering it, all of that, like this has been a crazy month. And it's been crazy too, because this is unprecedented. You know, everyone is trying to figure out the best way to cover this. You know, if Trump is giving a speech about, you know, all this electoral fraud, Yes, it's the president of the United States speaking, but he's also saying something that has been proven to not be true. So do you cover it? Do you stream it? Do you play it? Like there's, and it happened right after the election too. Like the first speech that he gave after the election, I can't, I don't want to misname which network did what, but I know one of the networks turned it off. You know, he started his speech and when he started claiming that he had won the election and that there had been widespread fraud, they turned it off, but then other networks left it on. And and a lot of it has, you know, come down to people having to make these decisions. You know, how much are we going to cover this? How much attention are we going to pay to it? You know, in a headline where you got to be quick and like, you know, get people's attention. How do you explain, you know, do you say Trump inaccurately says Trump falsely claims? Like, what? how do you phrase these things? All of that has been really tough in the last month of, of just navigating that. And, you know, it's crazy. Like it's, what is it? I think it's 41 days till inauguration. And I think, you know, there's no signs of Trump stopping. <laughs> you know, I, I've tried to not pay so much attention to it and like not look at his Twitter feed and not be reading into it so much and really just focus on like the piece that I'm covering a lot is the transition and what, you know, the Biden, who is he naming? How is he positioning himself for the first hundred days? Like, I'm operating on that framework because that's kind of what I've been tasked with covering. But for people that are covering the Trump side of things, it, it's really crazy. And it's really difficult to explain a president that doesn't plan on stepping down or a president that, you know, is already planning to run in 2024, potentially. Like, all of these things are very unprecedented. So I think a lot of it, too, is just us figuring out how to navigate all of it. You know, I... Again, I can't emphasize enough how wild it is that everything that's happening right now. And 
And like I, I mentioned before, disinformation, misinformation with the election, you know, I wrote a story in September that was about, you know, QAnon and was about all these like networks of like misinformation being spread on Facebook and all of that. It's another level when it's the president of the United States that is sharing this or when it's, you know, his attorneys that are sharing this or when it's members of Congress that are sharing this, you know, it's not like this really creepy underground, you know, alt website that's spreading it. It's like literally these elected officials that are doing it and knowing whether to write about it or give it credibility is a very like tricky area because just because you're important doesn't mean I should have to write about it if it's not true or should I? Like, that's a good, that's the well, question. Well, I want to follow up on that because it, it, it's true because um, and I'm sure you have other people at Political that have been seasoned reporters that have worked at other places. What are they telling you or what are your editors telling you about, hey, we don't, we're not covering that? Because like you said, he's got 86 million followers uh, on Twitter, right? So, you know, and, and even now the president broke a story the other day with Rudy Giuliani, you know, uh, having COVID-19. That was reported by the networks and the source was the, President Trump's Twitter. Like how difficult is that balance of what do I cover? And then what are you hearing from people, you, you know, that people that work in the industry, you, you know, you're in DC, like what, what are people saying? Are we gonna cover this? Are we not gonna cover this? Like how, how, do, you, how do you juggle that line? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I have friends that, you know, are on the Hill and then they'll off the record hear a lawmaker tell them like, no, we know that Trump lost, but then on the record, what they're saying is no, but he deserves to be able to fight this to the end. And it's not over till it's over and all of that. And that makes it hard to cover because you know what the person actually thinks, but what they're telling you on the record is something else. So do you include the on the record quote from the person when you know it's BS? Like that, that part has been difficult to navigate and, and difficult knowing like, okay, what this person just told me in a statement, I know that's not what they think. Like I am, I am actually, I'm positive that is not what that person thinks, but that's what they're saying. And I, and I did ask them for a statement and I am writing a story about this. So do I include it? And oftentimes, you know, you do, but you have to write around it and you have to figure out ways to like, okay, how do I couch this in a way that, you know, this is what this person is saying. However, again, to me add, saying like, there's always that one line that I'm like, however, this has been proven to not be true. Um, but I think, you know, and, and part of it happened with 2016, a lot of the conversation was, you know, that Trump winning was a surprise because everyone expected Hillary to win and people didn't really give a voice to Trump supporters and people didn't really give a voice to all these people outside of like, you know, DC and Florida. Nobody was paying attention to all these other states that had like widespread support for Trump, which Florida did too. So let me not say that not Florida, but you know, a lot of media coverage goes to South Florida and Cubans get a ton of coverage and then you get like DC, New York, and there's like very specific, you know, places that are focused on. And I think something that's been better in media coverage this time, and, and I can say from conversations at Politico, I can say from talking to friends in other news outlets and, and just reading other places, is people aren't necessarily dismissing all these people that think that the election was a fraud. You know, there's, I had a, one of my colleagues was at Trump's rally in Georgia this past weekend. He interviewed dozens of people there and talked to them and included their voices in the story and included, you know, if they were deciding whether they were going to go vote or not, if they actually believed this fraud, if they actually, 
supported, you know, Kelly Loeffler and Purdue, despite them not supporting Trump enough, like all these things. I think part of it is you got to keep covering it. And it's not like, oh, if we ignore Trump, he's going to go away. Or if we ignore Rudy Giuliani, he's not going to file another court case. But, you know, covering it in a way that, you know, says the truth, but also says this is what's happening. Because it is. that I mean, it, they are still filing all these court cases and they are still, you know, today I think the news was all the, the, all the people that signed on from Congress to the amicus brief. And it was like 100 lawmakers, like, a hundred congressmen saying that, you know, potentially that they believe that the election was a fraud. You know, you have to cover that. There's no way you can't. Um, But again, putting all these disclaimers that you know that a lot of it isn't true, or you know that there is no evidence that the election was stolen. When we think about coverage, you know, from where you stand on all this, what is the story that you feel is is being underreported or the story that if you could give more space to you're just dying to sort of put out to the uh to the to the public sphere i was actually talking about this today with one of my colleagues and it's that you know i really do want us to move past like all the misinformation surrounding the election onto all the misinformation that's now coming out surrounding the vaccine and coronavirus because like those are lives on the line. And I think that there could be a lot more coverage on that. Something that always frustrates me and, and, you know, being a journalist and being part of the media, I hate when people make the generalizations about the media and like the media is not covering this or the media never does this right. Or, you know, for every time that someone says a story hasn't been covered, I could find you like 10 people that have covered it or 10 people that pay attention to it. Like just because you're not reading it doesn't mean that nobody has been covering it or just because it's not at the top of the hour on the news program you watch doesn't mean it's not being covered. I do think the valid criticism though is like some things are given more attention than others and that part is frustrating. And I do think we've seen it with the pandemic that like one week we're really focused on the pandemic and then the next week we're focused again on the election and then it was like all the weeks like the what three weeks leading up to the election everything was about the election and suddenly the pandemic was gone <laughs> like we weren't that wasn't the top of the hour when you were listening to a news program and I think you know I want to see journal like I want to see media be better about that like I want to believe that a story about the pandemic can be the top of Politico's website instead of a story about what Trump said. And I've seen that first, you know, I've seen that happen with my editors and I'm so happy that that has happened, but I want to see more of that more consistently. And I want to see more like prioritization given to some of that coverage, because I think, you know, at the end of the day, January 20th is going to come around and president elect Biden is going to be president Unless something wild happens, I, I actually shouldn't say that because you never know. But but you know that, you know, January 20th will come around and, and Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. Um, but we're still figuring out what's going to happen with the pandemic. Like, we're all still living through this. And I think doing a good job of covering what next, covering stuff about the vaccine, covering stuff about rollout about the vaccine and like accountability about how states administer that, like all of that is gonna be really fascinating. And, I, and I'm just excited to see how people do covering it. And obviously I'm fingers crossed on a human personal level, hope that it is done well for all our sakes, but you know, and if it's not, I want someone help, like holding you know, leaders accountable. 
Sabrina, it's been great having you on. Um, before we let you go, um, a message you would give to aspiring female journalists, should, should they keep going? You know, you talked about somebody, an influence in your life. What, what, what would your message be to, to tomorrow's female journalists out there? Yeah, I think, you know, keep going. I think, you know, a lot of people will discourage you. And I don't think it's only exclusive necessarily to being a woman journalist, but a lot of people will discourage you from this field because it is not the most lucrative uh, industry to be a part of. But I think it's such a fulfilling job. Like I love my job. My family makes fun of me because I'll work like an 11 hour day and they'll think it's insane. And like, I don't mind because I like what I do. Um, And I think if you're passionate about it, like you will be successful and you can do it. And there's going to be plenty of other women journalists along the way that are going to want to bring you up and help you. Um, So I think, you know, being willing to ask for help, being willing to ask for advice and knowing that like, it's going to work out. And that, I don't know, it's a very fulfilling career. That's great advice. Um, Sabrina, we, we've loved having you on. Thank you for your continuing coverage, um, everything that you're doing at Political. You can check out Sabrina's articles on political.com. Um, thanks so much for hopping out with us tonight, Sabrina. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right, that was politics writer at Politico, uh, Sabrina Rodriguez. Uh, she, she was great. I mean, just the, the world of knowledge that she has being a female journalist and not only covering the administration, uh, but she's also covered a bunch of different other areas for political education, trade. Um, Nick, what'd you think of, of Sabrina? Everything is advertised. I thought her story just to where she is as a writer, as a journalist was just fascinating. You know, the educator in me got a chance to hear just her thoughts about the, you know, the writer's journey in the classroom and what, you know, what feels right in terms of building your craft and what is very different in the real world of writing versus what is what is brought up in the classroom. Uh, and just her stories about being a reporter in DC and being a Latina journalist and um, everything that comes in between. And, you know, we also got a chance to talk about just fact versus fiction, you know, from a journalist standpoint and something you and I've done before and just having Sabrina come on to speak to that, just another refreshing voice. Yeah, no, I thought she was great. And, and you know, the journalist in me, because you and I are both school communication majors and graduates, um, it's great to hear that, you know, here's a reporter doing it the right way. Um, check out Sabrina's stories on Politico. As always, uh, you can listen to our podcast wherever podcasts are available or watch it, the video clips on YouTube. Subscribe and follow the show. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time. is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.